0: Going where no science show has gone before. The Naked
3: Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists. with me, Ben Valsler, and with Helen Scales. Hello. This week, we'll find out all about the new discovery of a protein that responds directly to the amount of fat in our diets, and how just a fraction of a dose of vaccine could be all you need to prevent an epidemic. Helen.
4: Thanks, Ben. Also, we will find out about the toughest, hardest ceramic ever made, inspired by that lovely, shiny Mother of Pearl, and why sea turtles do much better when they lay their eggs on untouched.
3: Also in this week's show, we're looking at the workings of the visual system. We'll find out how the different parts of the human eyeball work together to focus images for our brains to interpret. And we'll find out some of the things that can go wrong.
4: And coming up, we'll be finding out how cataracts form and how lens replacement surgery could fix them, why blinking is just so essential, and how gene therapy and stem cells are offering hope to those with degenerative eye conditions.
3: Plus, I find out how laser eye surgery can let me throw away my glasses, I'll discover the differences between the different types of laser eye surgery, find out what the risks are, and importantly, whether or not I'm suitable for the treatment.
4: And in Kitchen Science this week, Dave brings out some of his more unusual toys to look at how different light sources emit light.
3: Dave, you have one last light bulb for us to look at, but this one's a bit special, isn't it?
5: Yeah, around the other side, we have my streetlight. And this is actually a proper orange sodium streetlight, the type that you would find... Along the roads. Yeah, we're having to be a bit further away because the streetlight is a lot bigger.
3: And that's very typical of Dave, of course, to have some very unusual toys like street lamps for us to play with as and when we need them. So that's all coming up on today's Naked Scientists. If you want to get in touch with any comments or questions, we would love to hear from you. The email address is Chris at the scientistscom The Naked Scientists Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting
0: provider. On the web at UKFast.net.
6: You're
4: listening to The Naked Scientist and as always we'll kick things off with the, a little roundup of science news and I shall start with news this week that scientists have unveiled a brand new material that was inspired by nature and is thought to be the toughest, strongest ceramic type material that has ever been made. Now this new invention was announced this week in the journal Science by Robert Ritchie and his colleagues from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California in the US and their inspiration came from Mother of Pearl which is also known as NACA. It's the iridescent shiny stuff that you find on the inside of seashells and it's also the same stuff that pearls are made from. Now essentially Mother of Pearl is made from calcium carbonate which in itself doesn't necessarily seem to be all that remarkable but it's the arrangement of very strong but brittle layers of calcium carbonate interspersed with slippery organic layers that make the lubricant that that act like a lubricant and ultimately makes Nacre um, or Mother of Pearl three times as tough um, as just normal calcium carbonate. Now these layers are also the key to the beautiful luster of mother of pearl.
3: I understand as well that the layers of calcium carbonate are also responsible for what gives it that colour. It's actually a nano effect; it's structural colour. And if you were to grind it all up, you wouldn't see that lovely shine on it because it's the interaction between those layers that gives you that colour.
4: Exactly. It's all about structure, and it's a similar sort of things go on in butterfly wings, actually. And so it's all it's it's absolutely about how that material is put together. And it's so we've known for a long time. Scientists have known that this is the secret to not only this the beauty of of Mother of Pearl but it's incredibly tough nature but until now no one's actually been able to artificially recreate that material um, except just in very thin sheets of material but um, now uh, Richie and his colleagues have put together really quite large lumps of it in sort of a few centimetres uh, cubed and it's not actually made from um, calcium carbonate um, but from a mixture of aluminium oxide and plain old water and by mixing these two together then very carefully and specifically freezing the mixture the researchers have been able to encourage the aluminum Aluminium oxide to form sheets, um, and then by freeze drying the mixture, that actually gets rid of the water, leaving this sort of scaffolding, if you like, of the aluminium oxide in these very particular layers, very very tiny, tiny structures, um, and then in between that they add a polymer which acts as this sort of lubricant that the organic material, the proteins, do um, in real mother of pearl in the wild, um, and this allowed Ritchie and his team to mimic these same interspersed layers that are found in real mother of pearl, um, and uh, you know, and it's, it's this incredibly tough material that essentially, um, if a crack starts to form it doesn't get any bigger it's really quite incredible stuff um, and the team think that they could get even better even stronger, tougher ceramics in the future by making the structures even finer and making them even more closely mimic natural mother of pearl
3: Fantastic, well something that stops a crack sounds a bit like rip-stop nylon to me but I'm guessing this is somewhat more impressive and you probably couldn't make hiking trousers out of it
4: uh, Not at the moment, but you never know all sorts of Applications I'm sure are already in the pipeline for this. Stuff.
3: Ceramic hiking trousers just around the corner. Now, scientists have found another chemical involved in obesity. Now, this is one that could hold promise for preventing diabetes. Writing in the journal Cell Metabolism, the researchers and there is quite a lot of them. So I'm sorry to not mention you by name. There's some from the Louisiana State University, some from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, some from Columbia University Medical Center, and someone from Cambridge University here in the UK. Um, they've identified the role of a protein called adropin, which plays a Very important role in digestion. It regulates a group of genes which affect how energy is stored. Now that includes the production of lipids or fats from the carbohydrates that we eat. So by affecting the storage, it affects how much fat we actually lay down for the energy that we take in. Adropin is coded for by a gene called Energy Homeostasis Associated, also known as NHO, And this gene is expressed in the liver, and is also expressed in the brain. Now, expression of the gene itself is regulated by the amount of fat in our diet. We know this because mice on a very high fat diet showed a very rapid increase in adropin, while mice who were given a very, very low fat diet, a fasting diet, in fact, showed a reduction in the amount of adropin. Now, this actually makes adropin one of the very first factors shown to be directly related to the amount of fat in our diet. And there is actually a further twist in the tale obese mice, whether they're obese from their diet so for a high fat diet as I mentioned before or from genetics don't produce adropin normally but if you take a mouse who's already obese and you give them extra adropin they show less fat in their livers and they respond better to insulin now these obese mice do eventually lose their weight again and go down to a normal weight range but the benefits such as the reduced liver fat can actually be seen a long time before that weight is lost As the gene for adropin is expressed in both the liver and the brain, it could well have some effect on the brain that we don't yet understand. So this means that we can't just try and tweak this gene straight away. It's not a silver bullet for obesity. It's certainly not a quick fix for obesity or for fatty liver. However, as it seems to be instrumental in the homeostasis of glucose and lipids, this relationship between the energy in our food and the fat that we lay down, it's certainly a candidate for further research.
4: It's, it's certainly... We're understanding more about it, isn't it? And that's fantastic. I have to say, whenever we talk about these kind of studies, I've got this, this kind of slightly comic picture in my head of little chubby mice in the laboratory and uh, sort of waddling around and so on but anyway.
3: actually if you go onto our website at thenakedscientist.com there is a picture of an enormously obese mouse right next to a normal weight range mouse and it's shocking it's sort of three times the size but these mice are essential for studying obesity and for our understanding of how this really huge health problem is actually affected.
4: It's very important indeed now back into the marine world once more, my favourite place of course, with a story this week that has provided the first robust evidence that sea turtles are more successful at producing young when females lay their eggs on beaches that are untouched by human hand. Now that's according to David Pike from the University of Sydney in Australia who published his study this week in the journal Biology Letters. Now they may spend the majority of their lives in the ocean but female sea turtles are tied to the land and they have to haul themselves out on beaches to lay their eggs in the sand. But what Pike did was he hunted through hundreds of other studies that have been published by people who have gone out and counted how many turtle eggs hatch on different types of beach, both those where people are present, where there's coastal developments, things like hotels and resorts, and other beaches where there's really no permanent human presence at all. And what he found was maybe not that much of a surprise. For both the magnificent loggerhead turtles and for green turtles, there are on average of around 12 to 16% more eggs hatching on undisturbed beaches compared to those on beaches with human developments on them.
3: But how can he actually know this? How can he see how many eggs are hatching without being the disturbance on the beach?
4: It's a a really good point and um, this particular paper doesn't go into all the methods because he's really just surveying the literature that's already out there but I can only imagine that the sort of studies these are might involve people because obviously researchers are very sensitive to these things they don't just go digging up eggs and sort of causing trouble it may be a case of actually very carefully watching while the females come onto the beach perhaps actually counting the eggs as they're laid because you can do that I mean you can can see them digging out the big pits um, in the sand laying their eggs in it and then making sure that they're around at the time when the eggs hatch and counting how many of little baby turtles which are so cute, I have seen them in the wild and they're wonderful, um, crawling back down the beach. So that, that might be a kind of non-invasive way of doing that but you're right this is something that, that scientists have to bear in mind and they don't, can't blunder in there and, and do this kind of thing that, that could be vaguely destructive. Um, but uh, that 12-16% to 16% might not sound an awful lot um, but it is likely to be important, for um, make an important difference for turtles because they faced a host of different threats in, uh, in the wild. That's things like being accidentally caught in the sea in trawling nets um, because they get stuck in those and drowned Um, and turtles often mistake plastic bags for one of their favourite food which are jellyfish which can cause all sorts of trouble and clog up their insides. It's not exactly clear why this hatching success rate is so much lower on developed beaches um, compared to the untouched ones but it's likely to be a combination of factors um, including when they're laid and during the incubation period things like trampling and physical distemps by those tourists perhaps um, and various forms of pollution but I think bottom line is the study shows just how crucial it is for us to protect those nesting beaches that aren't actually disturbed yet by coastal developments and we really need to be protecting those areas because that's where the turtles are really having lots of babies and it's the young turtles which really will determine the future of these wonderful species.
3: Well that's very interesting I hope that uh, the scientists don't disturb them too much but I'm sure they're far less disturbing than a massive hotel complex on the beach but now really interesting research that shows that actually a lower dose of vaccine could help to stop an epidemic. Now, when an epidemic does loom, governments should logically stockpile vaccines against it. That is a no-brainer. But if you have very little warning about the vaccine, or if it's very expensive, or if it takes a long time to develop, then you really have to look at alternatives. Research published in the Public Library of Science Neglected Tropical Diseases Journal suggests that a mere fraction of a vaccine may give enough short-term immunity to stop an epidemic in its tracks. Now, looking at meningitis outbreaks in sub-Saharan Africa, Philippa Guerin and colleagues from ...institutions in Norway, Uganda and Manchester... ...looked at the immune response of 750 healthy volunteers... when, ...when they were given either a full dose of meningitis vaccine... One fifth of a dose or just one tenth of a dose. They measured immune response by looking at something called serum bactericidal activity, which does exactly what it says on the tin, really. It's a measure of how effective a blood sample is at killing bacteria. So they took samples immediately before and then four weeks after they vaccinated, and they tested them against four serotypes, these are subgroups of meningitis, called A, C, Y, and W one three five, all. Very easy to remember names there. So, how did the partial doses fare against a full dose? Of the four groups, a tenth dose of vaccine was just as good as a full dose for types Y and 135, so that could go ten times as far. One-fifth of the vaccine dose was enough for group A, but unfortunately only the full vaccine dose gave an adequate serum bactericidal activity for group C. Now, clearly we shouldn't be stretching our resources beyond our limits, but in times of emergency, controlling the vaccine dose in this way could allow us to protect many more people in the time available, and it could be what we need to stop an epidemic before it gets too bad.
4: Sounds like that could be very good news indeed.
3: Keeping you abreast
0: of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists.
4: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Ben Vowsler and Helen Scales.
3: Now, we also been this programme live into Second Life from 6pm Sunday UK time, which I think is still 10am Second Life time confusing all of these different time zones especially when one of them's virtual uh, so if you'd like to join us in second life and meet all of the other listeners who join up there and chat about stuff you need to go to the Lands in second life find the naked Scientist mansion and stretch out on a sun lounger and enjoy this show
4: well now it's time for kitchen science time to get all experimental and this week dave is demonstrating a new use for cds
3: Hello and welcome to Kitchen Science. Today we are at Long Road Sixth Form College and Dave has brought us an experiment with light. Now Dave, you've just filled this room with various different light bulbs. You've got a glowing orange street lamp, an energy saving bulb,
5: an old fashioned incandescent bulb. What on earth are we doing? Well you may have seen really funky colours in CDs, so we're going to do a whole experiment about that. Fantastic. And
3: joining us for the experiment today are students here at Long Road College. Um, I've got Oz with me. Hi Oz. Hi. And mine as well. Hello. Hi. Have you ever noticed how you see funky patterns in the back of CDs? Yeah. Did you think that you might be able to get a science experiment
5: out of looking at those patterns? No. You've obviously got a bit of a hill to climb here, Dave. What do we need to do? <laughs> if you've got a CD and you have a normal conventional light bulb, you've got to be able to move the CD so you can see a really multicoloured, sort of splurgy version of that light bulb. So rather than just a pure reflection like you'd see in a mirror, there should be a sort of multicoloured, slightly blurred version. Yeah, that's right. I want people at home to look at as many different types of light bulbs, street lights, energy-saving normal light bulbs, maybe LED torches. Have a look at them in a CD and see if there's anything different about them. Uh, If you use a commercial silver CD, you ought to do better and get a better reflection than a CDR. So we have a conventional
3: light bulb, energy saver, and your street lamp here. Why would we expect there to be a difference?
5: Well, they all produce light in a very different way, so it could look different. So, Oz, would you expect to see a difference or would you expect the same pattern in all of them?
1: Um, difference.
3: And Hermione, what do you think?
4: I reckon it depends on the shape of the light bulb.
3: So, we have our different light bulbs and we want you to try this out at home using any old CD and we will come back to you later on in the show.
4: So, go on and have a try now. Grab a CD, commercial ones are the best. Use it as a mirror to look at as many different sources of light as possible. Move the CD around and let us know what you see. Why don't you send us an email? Chris at the
3: Now today we're looking into the science of vision and still to come we'll find out how laser eye surgery works to get rid of your glasses and we'll be finding out all about blinking and the importance of tears.
4: Absolutely. And eyesight is something that most of us are lucky enough to really take for granted because it's not until we actually lose our eyesight or have a problem with it that we really start to appreciate what we had. Now, cataracts are a very common problem. In fact, age-related cataracts are responsible for 48% of blindness all across the world and that affects about 18 million people. Now, Professor Sunil Shah joins us now from the Midland Eye Institute. Hi, Sunil. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining us today. Now, I thought we could start off with the very basics. Um... Just how do eyes actually work?
1: Um, Well, it's a uh, way of focusing uh, light um, uh, onto the retina, which is, uh, I mean, if you think of the eye as a camera, um, you have the cornea, which is the clear window of the eye, and the lens, which both focus the light onto the retina, which is a bit like the film in a camera. So
4: we have this sort of... uh, The back of our eyes is, is where we're picking up the light. Now, um... All sorts of things can go wrong with our eyesight. I know short-sightedness is when the image is focused in front of the retina and long-sightedness is when it's actually behind the retina. Um, but how does that, that sort of thing change as we get older?
1: Well, that's a condition called presbyopia. And um, what normally happens is that the lens in your eye um, actually changes um, shape when you try and read. So as you get older, and typically that's uh, about 45 or, or so, um, you start, uh, the lens stops being able to react so well, and um, then you need to give it some assistance in the way of reading glasses.
4: So is really just the close-up reading that becomes a problem. So, for example, I'm short-sighted. I think Ben is as well. He's wearing glasses here. Does that mean that as I get older, I'm going to become less short-sighted or I'm just going to become both short and long-sighted at the same time?
1: No, that's a, it's a bit of a misconception. That, um, th- there are actually a completely different mechanism. So for distance, you will remain short-sighted and you won't be able to see. Uh, but in addition, you will have um, a reading problem. Um, as it happens, uh, all that reading glasses do is make you artificially short-sighted. So if you are short-sighted to the right amount, you might get away with not wearing reading glasses, but you still have the distance problem. Right. So,
4: so I'll have to keep an eye on it anyway. We'll see um, yeah. how that all goes, whether I end up with bifocal glasses. But um, moving on now to um, cataracts, what what are they and how do they develop?
1: Well, cataracts, uh, I mean, we don't really know what causes them, but, uh, I mean, everybody will get a cataract if they live to be long enough, and um, there are many ideas on what causes them. Uh, one of them is uh, related to um, sort of sunlight exposure. Um, but essentially a cataract is uh, where the lens in the eye, so the lens is the size and shape of a smarty inside the eye, um, and the lens actually becomes um yellower and harder, and uh has an effect on the light getting through to the back of the eye
4: so it sort of actually seems like your look your vision becomes cloudier and uh, and more sort of indistinct as as you get older is that right?
1: If you're developing cataracts, cataract, mm.
4: yes. And I, I take it that this is something that, that, as you say, it sort of happens through time and perhaps <laughs> way back when we were all, you know, hunter-gatherers and so on. We wouldn't live long enough, really, until to, for cataracts to happen. And if they did, um, you'd be less likely to survive, perhaps. But now many of us are living, thankfully, living much longer. And so cataracts are presumably becoming more of a problem.
1: Uh, absolutely, and um, but also in the third world, they're still a major problem because uh, you know um, they do tend to develop a little bit earlier, and um, th- there's still a lot of places where there isn't adequate provision of um, treatment for it.
4: So we can treat cataracts. What, what can we do to to help people who have developed cataracts?
1: We, uh, this needs an operation. Um, The lens is inside the eye, or the lens or the cataract, um, so it does need a full operation. Um, Lots of the people we see think we can um, do the surgery with a laser, but that's not really the case. Uh, So what we do is um, uh, create a small hole, and and the hole's uh, between 2 and 3 millimetres large. And we um, remove the cataract inside the eye and in the space where the cataract would have gone, um, we uh, put a plastic lens in its place.
4: So you take the whole lens out?
1: Well, we, um, it's a little bit more complicated than that. If you go back to the smarty analogy, uh, what you actually do is you break open the candy coating on the outside, uh, remove all the chocolate, and in uh, in the candy coating, which is a bag, um, you put in the plastic uh, lens.
4: So you sort of squirt that back in.
1: Uh, well, sort it's a solid. Uh, it's, it's a solid, solid. lens. Okay. Um, but it, um, we can either roll it or fold it, and um, it goes in through the same three millimetre hole.
4: And once you've done that, that's all that, that you ever need to do. It doesn't become a problem in the future. That's sort of a one-off operation, and then they have much better vision for the rest of their lives.
1: That's correct. Yeah.
4: Excellent, but. Um, Replacing lenses uh, to cure cataracts—that's one thing. Is there anything else we can use lens surgery for?
1: Uh, well, we um, we use lens surgery instead of laser surgery in um, in people who want to get rid of their um, short sightedness as well, um, or their long sightedness. So, it's not a uh, it's not a procedure you'd choose for somebody who's younger, um, or who has a small prescription. But uh, certainly, there are um, you know indications for it. And, uh, for example, uh, some while ago I I treated somebody whose prescription was minus 27. Oh, goodness Uh,
4: me, that's enormous.
1: Yeah, so most most people think they're pretty bad when they're minus 2 because they can't see the um, top letter on the chart. But uh, if you think this person was uh, 10 times as bad...
4: That's incredible to imagine.
3: So replacing the lens for the same reason that you'd have laser eye surgery does this mean as we've already mentioned later on in the show we have a package all about laser eye surgery where i actually went along to have a consultation one of the things they told me is that if your eyes are going to change over the next say five or ten years anyway then laser eye surgery won't stop that from happening but would lens replacement surgery mean that the further degradation of your eyesight won't actually happen
1: Well, in in general, uh, most people's um, prescription doesn't change uh, after their early 20s. So if you've got um, evidence of uh, no change over a number of years, it's actually extremely unlikely they'll change after that time. And certainly that's why the College of Ophthalmologists recommend that uh, we do not do laser eye surgery until somebody's 21. Um, But, yeah, um, I mean, you have to take uh, each person on what their prescription is, what the state of their eye is, what their requirements in terms of job and um, uh, hobbies are before you actually decide what sort of procedure to offer them.
4: Well, that's fantastic. Thanks, Sunil. That was Professor Sunil Shah from the Midland Eye Institute based in Solihull in the West Midlands. And Sunil will be with us for the rest of the show. So if you have any questions at all about eye surgery, cataracts or eye health, then do get in touch. The email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. <laughs>
0: Laying the facts bare. I say.
3: The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with the delightful Helen Scales. Very recently, Meera met up with Cardiff University researcher Paul Murphy. Now, he looks at the science of tear composition and the science of blinking. But why do we do it? Why do we blink?
6: It's good for our eyes because the surface of your eye needs to have... Moisture on it to keep it, the cells healthy. They add little nutrients to the cells there. They provide oxygen to the eye and they also provide a nice smooth optical surface and that helps us see nice and clearly.
4: So how, how does this happen when we blink? How is the health of our eye maintained?
6: Well, there are different parts of the tears. Uh, there's a little bit at the bottom which is like a mucus layer and that comes from little cells in your eye and they secrete that all the time and that helps the tears stick to the eye. Then you have a watery bit that comes from a little gland tucked up under your eyelid, and they're secreted just gradually all the time, and that adds the watery bit. So when your eyes are watering, those cells have been squeezed and more water's coming out. And they've also got an oily layer at the top to help... Um, two things, they help the tears spread each time we blink because the blinking squeezes all the tears down and then they have to spread back out and that oily layer makes that easier and they also stop the evaporation so you want your tears to stay there and you don't want them to wash away or evaporate away but that evaporation is actually part of the secret of what we think is going on with blinking if you keep your eyes open for too long it hurts, everyone goes, you know you can have staring competitions but that hurts if you keep your eyes open for too long So you need to blink before that happens, but you don't want to spend your life blinking, so there must be somewhere in the balance in between the two. So if you have evaporation coming off the tears, even with that oily layer there, that's producing temperature change and maybe a localised temperature change because the evaporation isn't always equal in the different places it's happening. And we've got a thermal imaging camera.
4: Actually, yes, so we've got one here with us. And it's playing a recording of one of the visitors here today blinking, and you can see what the temperatures are at all the various regions of the eye.
6: Yes, that's right. So we're just looking at the temperature of the eye here. We've got hot and cold patches, different colours representing different areas. Um, The central part of the eye, the clear cornea that we're all seeing through, has no blood vessels. That's important. You can't have blood vessels there, otherwise you couldn't see through them. So that bit is actually a little bit colder. It doesn't have the blood supply heating it up but the tears, they're warmed by the eyelids and also warmed by the body as they're being produced. Each time we blink, that warm tears are spread back over the eye. And then when you keep your eye open, as you're evaporating the tears slowly, and also over that colder central part, you get this temperature change going on. And these really sensitive corneal nerves can detect that temperature change. And when you've got the right amount of temperature change, cornea says, oh, right, we've got a temperature change going on. That's sent to the blink center in your brain. And we trigger another blink, and the whole thing starts again.
4: Does the composition of our tear films vary greatly throughout the general public?
6: Yes. Uh, we're all different, aren't we? So we're all the same, but we're all different. From a kind of an overall point of view, we're supposed to blink maybe ten or twelve times a minute. But equally, some of us blink more, some of us blink less. That's partly due to the tear film. Um, some of us have better quality tear film, some of us have poorer quality tear film. A simple way of looking at that is actually just to take a little tear sample take it on a glass slide allow it to dry there for maybe 10 minutes and it forms this beautiful crystal pattern you know when you on the cold winter's morning and you look at the crystals on the windscreen of the car or something like that it's that kind of a thing that you're looking at if you've got a a properly balanced tear film you have a beautifully neatly packed tight small little ferning pattern that looks really regular and neat and tidy but if you start to have an imbalance where the Maybe there's not enough salt, or so there's too much salt, or there's too many proteins, or that mixture's wrong, the pattern changes quite dramatically. And it's a really easy way for us to start judging quality of tear film.
4: And so, I guess, then having looked at this in a patient's eye, would you then be able to tailor eye drops more specifically to what their eye exact- needs exactly?
6: Yes, that, that's, that's what's starting to happen. The manufacturers of all these drugs and drops have begun to look at these issues and now there are quite a number of drops out there. We're still only at the beginning of this, unfortunately. We're still trying to find the, the correct mixture and that's what we're hoping our work will do, try and answer some of those questions.
3: That was Dr Paul Murphy from Cardiff University explaining the science of tears and blinking to Meera Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science... The Naked Scientists. Previously on The Naked Scientists, we have discussed the use of stem cell therapy for treating age related macular degeneration, or AMD. AMD is a leading cause of blindness in the elderly in the UK, but there have also been great advances in treating many of the less common causes of sight loss. Professor Robin Alley is from the Institute of Ophthalmology at the University College London, and he works on both gene therapies and also stem cell treatments for a range of problems, including AMD, and also something called inherited retinal degeneration, which affects about one person in 2000 in the UK alone. Hi, Robin. Uh, thank Hello. you ever so much for joining us today. First of all, what is inherited retinal degeneration?
7: Well, it's a, um, a diverse uh, group of conditions um, caused by defects in uh, any number of... Uh, any one of 150 different genes, and um, they give rise to deterioration of vision that may start in uh, very early in life. Uh, it may, may in, indeed uh, result in in almost uh, absent vision uh, from birth, or it may affect um, individuals uh, in early adulthood or, or in middle age. But um, whatever the, uh, the gene defect, the, the result is a, a, a loss of photoreceptor cells uh, through apoptotic cell death and further
3: deterioration of vision. Okay, so is this a bit like AMD, where we lose a particular region of the retina? In particular with AMD, we lose basically our central vision. So our our peripheral vision is still reasonably good, but we lose the really important high detail bit in the middle. Is inherited retinal degeneration the same, or is it a bit more broad? Well, it's much
7: broader than that, because there are at least 150 different forms of inherited retinal degeneration so that some forms, um, and again, it's a group of conditions um, called retinitis pigmentosa, um, have defects in genes that affect uh, primarily the rod photoreceptor cells so that the patients experience a loss of of night, uh, night vision and peripheral vision, and then often they, because of the deterioration of their rods, their, their cones start to degenerate later in life, and so they loo- then start to lose central vision. And in other types of um, of inherited retinal degeneration caused by defects in genes that function in cone photoreceptor cells, uh, the central vision is is, is affected. And so and that sort of condition uh, might resemble the sort of vision loss one would experience in age-related macular degeneration. cause are quite different, but it it will be the loss of that um, um, central high definition. Vision.
3: I see. And just to clarify, the rod cells are the ones that we use for night vision. So they see really in black and white.
7: Dim, in dim light, and, and, and they don't perceive colour. And, and and one uses um, uh, rod uh, vision uh, in the periphery.
3: And the cone cells are the ones that pick up our, our full tricolour vision, and they're more focused in in the macula, in the really high detail area. Yes, and for reading and, and, and for reading. Uh, for instance, recognizing faces—that's
7: all uh, code-mediated vision.
3: Okay. So you've mentioned that there are you know, 150 different genes for 150 different types. How have we actually found the genes? How do we know which genes are going wrong?
7: Well, it's it, it's been a huge um, scientific challenge, and and and, and um, you'll be aware of the the genome project and and the human genome project um, was, was central to the identification of of, um, of, of Um, thousands of of, of disease-causing genes essentially it starts with with, um, identifying families that are affected, identifying pedigrees mapping the genes through traditional genetics and then then using molecular genetics to to hone down the region um, to the molecular level and then um, uh, eventually when when some candidate genes are found uh, proving that they're disease-causing Um, uh, and and often demonstrating that through um, uh, production of an animal model that's defective uh, in that particular gene that then results in a a, a gene defect.
3: So, uh, for example, a knockout mouse? A a knockout mouse, yes. Excellent. So, if we know what genes are causing the problem, can we treat it? Well...
7: We're starting to uh, make major advances in in, in developing treatments. I have to stress at this point, there is no effective treatment for any of the inherited retinal degeneration. but but my group's been involved over the last 15 years in developing um, gene therapy um, for for this set of conditions. And earlier this year, we published um, the first set of results from um, a clinical trial of gene therapy for one particular form of inherited retinal degeneration and the results were very encouraging and were built on really um, uh, work over the last decade showing that we could improve vision and and, and slow degeneration in a variety of animal models but this time uh, 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 earlier this year we showed uh, that, that we could use the same technology to improve vision in patients.
3: Fantastic. And is this using a, a retrovirus? So we're... it's it's
7: not using a retrovirus. Oh. It's using it's using a viral vector, but it's using a, a vector based um, on a virus called adeno-associated virus, which is a a different type of virus, which is essentially a non-pathogenic um, parvovirus that um, is 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 very common in, in 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 humans, and it's not known to be associated with any any disease. And we've Engineered the virus to carry the the missing gene and put that gene back into um, cells of the retina.
3: So this has to be applied directly to the retina. That you can't give this systemically and just hope that it gets taken into the right place and the gene is expressed it, in the retina.
7: It's it's um, the the vector is administered th- of, through a uh, quite complex surgical procedure that localizes the the viral suspension um, very precisely between two layers. Of cells in the retina between the photoreceptor cells and the retinal pigment epithelium so in this in this particular condition the gene defect uh, is in a gene that is um, expressed normally in the retinal pigment epithelium so we target the virus to that cell layer and the the virus is taken up by the cells and the the genes expressed in the cells and and, and, uh, produces
3: the normal gene product in that cell. Well, this sounds incredibly promising. Do you think you're likely to have similar gene therapies for other diseases in, in the inherited retinal degeneration spectrum or even things like advanced age-related macular degeneration?
7: Well, I, th- I think the technology is is, 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 um, is certainly um, uh, very promising and, and it's taken us 15 years to to move from um, the bench into, into the clinic. Um, but we expect that um, um, the, the, the next disorders that we that will treat um, will be able to do so much more rapidly the the, the the time for development is going to be diminished just because we 've learned so much more about um, um, the safety profile and the, um, and the technology that 's required for efficient gene delivery to, to to the eye, so we have now a program. That includes development of gene therapy, not only for um, the disorder we're treating at the moment, which is a uh, which is a type of labours congenital amaurosis amor- um, due to a defect in RP65, but we're we're looking at uh, three or four other rare inherited um, disorders, as well as um, developing a gene therapy approach for age-related macular degeneration. Now, for AMD, um, we we have to take an, a slightly different approach. The approach doesn't involve replacing a defective gene, but using the, the gene therapy vector uh, as a way of delivering a medicinal product. So instead of having to use um, uh, repeated injections of, of, of an antibody to target um, uh, gr- uh, blood vessels growing in the retina, we might be able to use a gene therapy vector deliver a gene that uh, will will have the same result. And the, the advantage of that is a single administration
3: I've no doubt that the idea of multiple injections into the eyeball will make quite a lot of our listeners quite squeamish. It certainly makes me tingle a little bit. Uh, Well, this all sounds incredibly promising, and so we will certainly stay in touch and hopefully find out a bit more. Um, So thank you ever so much, Robin. That was Robin Alley from the Institute of Ophthalmology at UCL explaining how gene therapy joins stem cells as a potential treatment for the key causes of blindness. Laying the facts bare, I say... The Naked Scientists. Now, the idea of firing a laser beam directly into your eyes seems counterintuitive. It seems like something you would not want to do. So many people discount the idea of laser eye surgery on the grounds of safety. But it could be a means of getting rid of your glasses, and perhaps forever. Now, I thought I'd go along for a consultation to find out a little bit more about it. How does it work? Could it be dangerous? And importantly for me, are my eyes suitable? Ophthalmologist Rena Gosi very kindly explained the whole process to me.
2: Laser eye surgery is a means of getting rid of your glasses. So what we do is we're reshaping the cornea to correct your prescription
3: what's the cornea actually made of?
2: Cornea is made uh, up of three layers. There's the epithelium layer and then we have the stroma which forms the core of the cornea and then the endothelium which is a single layer of cells which provide the nutrients to the cornea. It's mainly made of collagen, the stroma is anyway.
3: So it's a collagen structure but we can reshape it using lasers. How do the lasers actually reshape it?
2: Basically, by removing small amounts of tissue. So if you were to imagine the cornea, for example, as being like a wood, imagine changing the shape of the wood. So it's the same sort of thing with that. What the laser does is it causes small changes in shape of the cornea, and those small changes in shape can actually give a big change in the refractive power of the eye. Contrary to common belief, two-thirds of the power of eye is actually from our cornea and not from our lens. So we can actually do quite a bit by changing the power of the cornea.
3: And I know that there are a few different types of laser eye surgery. So what are the different kinds?
2: Essentially, there's two basic types of laser treatment. First of all is the LASIK which is spelt with an IK, and the other one sounds exactly the same, but it's spelt with the EK, LASIK. And The difference between the two is just the surgical procedure slightly different. With the LASIK, if we were to sort of imagine our cornea as being made up of, like, say, 100 sheets of paper, you can think of it as what we're going to do is we're going to lift the top 10 sheets, do the laser treatment underneath, and then put those top 10 sheets back again. Whereas with the LASIK, EK, if we imagine the 100 sheets again, we remove the very top layer, do the laser treatment underneath that, and the top layer regenerates. The main difference between these two is in the initial recovery period. LASIK is the one with the faster recovery. Most people are driving standards or better the next day, whereas the LASEC EK is roughly a week or so behind.
3: Why can't you just operate with the laser directly on the surface?
2: The top layer of our eyes, is epithelium, which is like a skin layer, so if you laser on top, it will just grow back again.
3: Is everybody suitable? Can everybody have laser eye surgery?
2: Unfortunately, not. Which is why you, we do the consultations. Most people are suitable. We have to turn away about 15% of patients that do come and see us. Unfortunately, it could be a number of things. It could be a general health condition that we, you know, is a contraindication. It could be the corneas are too thin. It could be the corneas are too steep, too flat. There's a number of reasons.
3: What are the risks with this operation?
2: I mean, the worst case scenario is an eye infection but that's quite rare. But you have the same sort of risk factor every time you put a contact lens in your eye, really. The most common question I get asked is, has anyone gone blind from this procedure? And we haven't had anyone that's lost their sight. But if we're thinking about the anatomy of the eye itself, you can sort of see why. You rule out a lot of the sight-threatening complications because you don't actually enter the eye to do the treatment. The treatment is very, very superficial. You're lasering the cornea.
3: And once you've had the surgery, how long does it last? Is this a five-year thing, or should it last for a lifetime?
2: The treatment itself is permanent, but the way your eyes change, that's individual to yourself. So say, for example, you didn't have treatment, and five years down the line your prescription was going to change by plus or minus one, for example. This change can still take place. So what the treatment does do is it corrects you at this moment in time with the prescription you have now. If your eyes are going to change, they're going to do so regardless A good indication that you're going to be stable after treatment is how stable you are beforehand. If your prescription, say, has been stable for the last 5-10 years, then that's a good indication it should be afterwards.
3: OK, well, I have just had a consultation with you. Yeah. Could you take me through the different stages and what have we had to do? Most of it was mm-hmm. very similar to a normal eye consultation.
2: That's correct. I mean, we measure your prescription. We check the health of your eye. We go through history and symptoms. So we know about more a bit about your general health. We look at the front surface of your eye or cornea, make sure that's nice and healthy. We're looking at your lens. We're looking at your retina. So these are the, all the normal things that they do for you in a normal sight test as well. Uh, but then you had a session where you did some scans. We looked at the front surface of your eye, we mapped your cornea, corneal topography. Then we measured um, your aberrations, how much glare you suffer from.
3: OK, so we have my scans here. Yeah. And how do I look? How, can you tell me what yeah. these actually mean?
2: OK, first of all, if we have a look at the orb scans, which is a topography map. First of all is um, looking at how steep or how flat your cornea is. And yours is perfectly within the normal scale. Having a look at your corneal thickness map, your corneas are nice and thick, which is fantastic when it comes to laser treatment.
3: Map is really exactly the right word, isn't it? It generally looks like a map of hills or mountains and and lakes.
2: Yes, it definitely does, yeah.
3: (laughs) So that's the orb scan showing the topography of Mm -hmm. my cornea. So what's the other scan that they did?
2: The other scan is the aberometer. So that measures how much glare you suffer from. So If you were to imagine this as being a pinpoint of light, what we have here is a picture of how your eye actually scatters the light in different directions.
3: What this should really be is just one solid pinpoint of light, but it actually looks... it almost looks like a crystal. It's sort of triangular, it has lines inside it, like you would on a diamond.
2: Yes, it does. Yeah, everyone has a different map, depending on how much aberrations and what type of aberrations you have. Yeah.
3: So, putting all of this together, looking at my prescription and the shape and thickness of my cornea,
2: mm-hmm.
3: am I eligible? Could I have laser eye surgery?
2: Yes, you are suitable to have the treatment done.
3: Hooray! So my eyes are suitable for laser surgery. Thanks ever so much to ophthalmologist Rena Gosi for taking me through the process. Now, I must apologise to anybody who saw me in Cambridge after my consultation. They give you some eye drops that dilate your pupils. I've sprained my ankle recently, so I was hobbling along with enormous pupils, unable to focus. I may have looked quite spaced out. So if anybody saw me, I'm sorry if you were frightened, but it was all for a good purpose. We found out about laser eye surgery, and I found out that I can get rid of my glasses.
4: Are you going to, though? That's the question.
3: We shall see, I Ah,
4: think. Exciting. Well, it's now time to invite the lovely Diana O'Carroll back into the studio. And unlike me, she doesn't have a stinking cold. Hi, Diana. (laughs) Just you,
8: wait; i I'm sure I'll be due for one soon. Um, Anyway, this week for Question of the Week, I'm going to be laughing all the way to the bank. Hiya. This is Scarlett Taylor calling from South Wales. I'd like to know exactly what it is that makes us physically laugh when we find something funny. Thank you. Oh, she's so cute, isn't she? Um, so what is it that keeps stand-up comedians in a job?
9: Uh, Robert R. Provine, I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Uh, why do we laugh at something that's funny? Well, actually, something that's funny is by definition something that makes us laugh. So I'll talk about why we laugh. Now, laughter is really a social phenomenon. If we look back to its origins, laughter, the ha-ha, originated in the pant-pant of rough-and-tumble play, such as you would find in Tickle, or the rough-and-tumble play of children. So (laughs) pant-pant became the human (laughs). ha-ha. With adults, however, uh, the arena of laughter has shifted from Tickle and and rough-and-tumble to a more linguistic and cognitive arena, whereby, for example, the play of adults has to do with wordplay during conversations. So you don't have to tickle uh, one of your colleagues to get them to laugh. You can tell them a joke. But even within conversation, the key to laughter is the presence of another person. Laughter almost totally disappears when we're alone. So the key element producing laughter is another person, not a joke. In fact, we have uh, followed people around and recorded what was said uh, before people laugh. And in only 10 or 15% is it... Uh, Anything remotely joke like, Uh, most laughter follows comments like, hey, where have you been? (laughs) Uh, I've got to go now. (laughs) These aren't jokes. So it basically is about developing uh, bonds and relationships with other people.
8: So it turns out that humour evolved after laughter did, and it's not all that funny after all, so stop smiling. And on our forum, Make It Lady and Richard, 1964, said that there's also the case of nervous laughter. Why do kids giggle when they get into trouble? Well, next week I'll be looking at something else that is supposed to make us happy.
9: This is Rick Shepp from Vermont, USA, and my question is, what exactly is tryptophan, and does eating turkey make you sleepy?
8: So, is it worth an extra helping of turkey during the festive season? Let us know by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com or write us on our forum, which contains a full discussion of these questions. That's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum.
0: Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists.
4: Now, let's get back to Long Road Sixth Form College for more kitchen science.
3: Well, welcome back to Kitchen Science. We are still at Long Ridge Sixth Form College with Hermione, Oz and Dave Ansell. And Dave's got a range of different lights. In fact, it's really bright in here. It's almost hurting my eyes. So, Dave, you want us to look at different light sources in a CD to see what happens?
5: Yeah, that's about right. So, Hermione, can you stand sort of maybe six feet away from the light bulb and then try and move that CD around? It'll, you'll have to get it at exactly the right angle so you can see a nice rainbow pattern with almost an image in it. Can you see that, Hermione? I can see it. And so, what does it actually look like?
4: Just really bright, vibrant colours in like a rainbow pattern.
3: So, that was from a conventional light bulb. The next bulb we have, Dave, is? An energy saving light bulb. So, this is one of those fluorescent tube type light bulbs that you get that should save us lots and lots of energy. Oz, could you grab the next CD and uh, do the same sort of thing? So, again, you need to try and see an image, a multicoloured image of that light bulb in the CD. And can you tell us what you can see?
5: The light is more like, compared to the other
3: one, the actual light beams on the CD are much wider. Okay, and is it the same sort of rainbow effect? Um, It's more like grouped together with thinner strands
5: of the different light colours. Instead of being a
3: continuous different spectrum?
4: Um, It's more like jagged and like broken up.
5: Yeah, actually what you're seeing is separate pictures of this light bulb in different places in different colours. That's cool. Okay, so
3: we've seen those now, and Dave, you have one last light bulb for us to look at, but this one's a bit special, isn't it?
5: Yeah, around the other side, we have my (laughs) streetlight, and this is actually a proper orange sodium streetlight, the type that you would find along the roads. Yeah, we're having to be a bit further away because the streetlight is a lot bigger. Can you see a rainbow effect from that streetlight anywhere?
2: No, not really.
4: You can slightly, but the beam of the orange light is taking over, basically.
3: So mainly, all we're seeing from this, instead of a rainbow spectrum, we're seeing orange.
5: Yeah, that's right.
3: So Dave, why is this happening? Surely the CD just reflects back to us what we see.
5: Well, the reason why the CD is producing these rainbow patterns in the first place is that the CD is made up of lots of little tiny pits, and the bottom of the pits are slightly lower than the top of the pits. So you end up with two reflections from very close together. So we're actually seeing two sets of reflections
3: coming back to our eyes off the CD, some of them from the top and some of them from the bottom inside these pits.
5: Yeah, that's right. And now light is a wave. And if you imagine two waves which start off half a wavelength apart, and when they reach your eye, one's going to be going upwards and the other one's going to go downwards. So they're going to exactly cancel out. You're not going to actually be able to see anything.
3: So if they're what we call out of phase, if you're getting one wave going down while the other one's going up, even if they're otherwise identical, they'll cancel out and you won't see anything.
5: Yeah, that's right. Whereas if they started off a whole wavelength apart, then when one's going up, the other one's going to be going up as well. So they're going to add together and make a very powerful light.
3: So in that case, the waves double up and you get a
5: much brighter light of that wavelength. But what's that got to do with the pits on the CD? Well, different colours of light have got different wavelengths. So the same distance between the two pits, for some colours, could put them in phase and they add up and produce a lot of light. And for other colours, they could be out of phase, so they don't add up, so you can't see any light. So there are some
3: wavelengths of light where the distance between the top and the bottom of one of these pits on a CD will actually line up with, say, half a wavelength or a whole wavelength. And that would mean that they would either cancel out that wavelength or, in fact, double it up. So we see certain frequencies reflected more strongly on a CD than we would, say, if we were
5: looking in a mirror. That's right. And if you look at different angles, then the difference in distance which the light is out to travel is different because it's coming in diagonal. So it will affect different colours differently.
3: And this is why when we see the image of a light bulb, we see sort of what looks to be a blue image of the light bulb next to a green one, next to a red one and so on, instead of seeing just one
5: whole image. Yeah, because at some angles the blue light gets reinforced, at some angles the green light gets reinforced, and others the red.
3: So, what's going on with the street lamp? Why do we only see orange from that?
5: Well, the street lamp only produces one colour of orange light, so even if the CD splits it all up, you can only see one image. Whereas the energy saving light emits several different colours, but still only very narrow bands of colour, so you see various different images in different places. But the conventional light bulb gives out a big smooth spectrum, all the different colours of light in the rainbow. So you can see a big blur with all, lots and lots of images of that light bulb overlapping in slightly different places. So, did you think you'd get a physics lesson
3: from the back of a CV today?
8: No. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and what do you think? Are you at all surprised that, that these different light sources act differently just by looking at their reflection in the CV?
4: Um, yeah, I guess, because they're all giving off light, so you guess they're going to give off the same thing.
3: Well, it's very interesting that they don't. So that's all we have for Kitchen Science this week, and we'll be back with more very soon.
4: So the tiny distance between the top and bottom of the pits on a CD reinforces certain wavelengths of light and suppresses others, which is why you see that lovely rainbow effect. Look at a street light, on the other hand, which produces the light of a single orange wavelength, and the effect disappears.
3: And we will be back with more Kitchen Science next week. You can always check out the ones we've done before by going to thenakedscientists.com slash kitchenscience. But now we are running out of time for this week's show, but we've had a question from Connie in God Manchester, and this one's for Robin Ali. And Connie says, "I have retinitis pigmentosa. Is there a downside to having a cataract removed? What do you think, Robin?"
7: Well, cataracts are very common in in patients with RP, and that's probably because their retina is thinner and um, there's less oxygen consumption, and that extra oxygen generates free radicals and, and and damages the the lens. But I think in general, there's no there's no downside to to having the cataract removed, and that that's that's what often happens. But uh, but um, um, it's very important for individuals to seek appropriate advice and consultation
3: with their ophthalmologist. Of course, of course. Well, it certainly sounds like something that's worth doing if it Absolutely. can improve your yep. vision at all. Helen? Absolutely.
4: Yes, uh, we had a question here which I'm going to send towards Sunil, and it comes from Roger in Suffolk. And he wants to know how long will a cataract operation actually last um, before it starts to grow back again?
1: Uh, cataract operations are a one-off procedure, so a cataract can't um, come back in itself. So, you know, even children who are born with cataracts, once they've had their cataract operations done, um, they'd expect to uh, live without a, a cataract for the next 80 years. The only thing that can happen is that you can get some clouding of the membrane holding the implant in place, and um, some people call that an after-cataract, but that can even be easily be lasered away without the need of another operation.
4: That's great news indeed. Once you've had your cataracts operated on, you don't have to worry at all. That's fantastic.
1: Well, I'm
3: afraid that that's just about all we have time for this week. Many thanks to Sunil Shah, Robin Ali, Paul Murphy, who was talking to us about blinking earlier, and Rena Ghosi, who assured me that I can have laser eye surgery if I can afford it. Thanks very much also to our production team, Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week, Mira Senthalingam, who is always essential to the Naked Scientist, and Tom Simpkins in here in Chris's place, driving the desk. Next week, we're going to follow the story of emerging diseases, find out why the pressures of rising population or climate change are forcing people and livestock into areas where they're coming into contact with new pathogens. We'll also find out about how the pathogens themselves are in fact evolving.
4: So get all your questions into us on chris at scientist.com, and we'll have the answers for you, as ever, along with the latest news on what's hot in the world of science and, of course, another great kitchen science. If you'd like to hear the show again or catch up on a show you might have missed, if you've missed any, where have you been? But you can download them all for free on The Naked Scientist's website. The podcasts are there waiting for you at www.thenakedscientist.com forward slash podcasts. That's all we've got time for this week, so thanks for listening and goodbye
0: the naked scientist podcast comes to you from cambridge university and is supported by the Wellcome trust the epsrc and uk fast for more information look us up online at nakedscientist.com thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the uk